Before I begin, let me just make a, a quick comment about the song. Man, as I was listening to Christ is Risen, there was this one line that I don't know why. I guess I never really thought about it. But there's this line where it says, uh, trampling over death by death. That is like so deep. <laughs> I just want to share with you and let that cook in your noodle for a while. All right. Um, let me tell you uh, the theme of the retreat. So the theme of the retreat is encountering God. Um, and uh, when Sue Sing and I sat together, can we lower the volume just a little bit? When Sue Sing and I sat down together and uh, we talked about uh, the theme of the retreat, we said, you know, what is it that our people need more desperately than anything else? And we both agreed that uh, what we need is an encounter with the true and living God. And um, more than a good life, more than um, a job, uh, more than money, more than even health, we need God. We need to know God to experience God. And all our problems comes from this, that we don't know God. And in the busyness of our everyday lives, we've forgotten, right? We've, we've become dull to this awesome reality of God. And so, and so all of our angers, you know, all our anxieties, all our um, fears is from this, right? And so for the next several days, through the course of the retreat, we're going to really do a sustained meditation on God. And we're going to really just soak in, in, in the God of Scripture as he's revealed himself in the gospel, in Christ. And so I hope you guys are excited. I hope that uh, you, you have an anticipatory heart. Um, and with that, let me uh, begin with prayer. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we cry out to you for mercy. Um, for without you, we're lost. And if you don't reveal yourself, how can we know you? And if you don't speak to us, um, we'll be empty. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and you would open our hearts and, and the Spirit would attend the message. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, tonight, can we, I'm sorry, I keep making adjustments. Can we lower? I, I feel like I hear feedback. Hello? Okay. I think that's good. I may make further adjustments. All right. So, tonight, we're going to begin by asking this question. Why do we feel so distant from God? Why don't we feel uh, God's presence in our lives? You know, why isn't he a reality? Or maybe to put it another way, why are so many of us spiritually dry? Why do we feel so empty? And the answer is that we have made God small in our hearts. And that's the argument I'm going to be making tonight, right? That we have made God small in our hearts. We've made him this uh, appendage. We've made him this uh, sidekick to the real action, to the real center of our lives. And so because God is not our soul's delight, because he is not our, the all-satisfying joy, um, he's become, we've diminished him. Right? We've demoted him to second place. And that is the problem. Um, and so I want you to keep that in mind as we turn to our text. If you guys could look to 1 Samuel chapter 15. In your, in your Bibles, First um, Samuel 15, which is after, in the Old Testament, it's after Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and it's and if you're looking at if you're looking at Isaiah or Psalms, you've gone too far. All right, First First Samuel 15. All right, it says there in your, um, your church program there, we're going to start in verse 10. I wanted to kind of jump into the story right away. But actually, on, on further reflection, I decided, okay, let me back up a little bit. Let me just read, starting in verse, verse uh, 1. We'll just read the first three verses, and then we'll skip on to, chapter, to verse 10. 
All right, verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Let me stop right there. Um, I'm sure most of you, at, or some of you at this point, are horrified. And you're aghast. Why would God command such a thing? Why would he command the, the destruction of an entire people? Now, I wish I had a lot more time to, to give you a much fuller explanation. But let me just simply say this. And this will have to do. This is the justice of God. Right? The, the Amalekites are an evil, wicked people, and they have done evil things. They've committed murder, and so this is the justice of God. This is the wrath of God coming down. Okay, so what happens next is King Saul suits up. He gets his army, and he goes to war. He defeats the Amalekites. He kills everyone, as ordered, except he spares the king. He destroys all the flocks, except he keeps some of the best. And then we'll skip to verse 10. The word of the Lord... Is there anything I need? Should I make an adjustment? Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) All right. Um, The word of the Lord... uh, What am I saying? Verse 10, right? Uh, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he turned back from following and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And he was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I heat? And Saul said, they have, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, you are, not, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. 
for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then then Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. We'll stop there. This is the word of God. And so uh, there's just so much going on in this passage. And obviously I don't have the time to unpack everything. And so we're going to focus on one very narrow aspect of the story. We're going to look at the disobedience of Saul. Why did Saul disobey? And uh, it's a really interesting back and forth dialogue, right? This little debate, uh, exchange between King Saul and the prophet Samuel. And they're arguing, did Saul obey the Lord? And what's really curious is that Saul insists he's obeyed the Lord, right? The moment he sees Samuel, he says, I did it. I obeyed. I fulfilled the mission. And Samuel says, no, you didn't. You disobeyed. You kept the best of the flocks. And and what's really crazy is does Saul say, oh, yes, you are right. That part I did not keep. That's true. No, he continues to insist. He says, but I did obey. I did listen. I fulfilled the mission. Right? And it's really a remarkable dialogue. And I can honestly think of no other place in the Bible where this happens. Um, Now, who's right? It seems to me on the surface that King Saul has the better argument. Right? He did defeat the Amalekites. He did put everyone to death with the exception of one person, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. He destroyed most of the flocks, and yes, he preserved the best, some of the best, but as he said, he and the people, they were going to offer some of those animals in sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I used to read that as Saul just being a weasel, you know, and on the spot, he's just making it up. He has no intention, but honestly, I don't think we can read it in that way, because, and part of the problem here for us is that we just... We're not reading for Samuel all the way through. And when you do, the portrait that arises is a man, King Saul, who's a fairly decent guy. He's a pretty religious man, and so it's not at all out of character for him to really offer sacrifices to God. And notice Samuel doesn't call him out. Samuel doesn't say, no, you liar. You weren't going to sacrifice. He says, fine, you were going to sacrifice. That's not the point. And so Saul did almost everything that he was asked. And if we were to grade his obedience as a percentage... We would say maybe, what, 90%? Right? 90%. What is that? An A minus? B plus? And so that's what Saul is thinking. That's his argument. I obeyed the Lord. I essentially obeyed. Um, I did 90%. And so why is Samuel's critique so harsh? Why does he say, you did not obey God at all? You didn't listen at all. Right? Why does he say what you did was evil and because you have 
rejected God, God has rejected you. I mean, why is Samuel framing this in such extreme terms? You know, why is it so black and white? Why can't he acknowledge the parts that Saul did right? Why is the whole thing disobedient so that Saul wasn't listening to God at all? And that is the question that I'm asking in this passage. And that's the, that's the critical question. This is, this is the whole point of the sermon. What is the essence of sin? That's the underlying question that Saul and Samuel are debating. What is the essence of sin? What is rebellion against God? Why is it that despite the fact that Saul does almost everything right, right, he does everything he's asked, almost, the parts where he failed discounts the whole thing so that the whole thing is disobedience. That's the question. And King Saul gives us the answer, and he kind of lets it slip in verse 24. Right? In verse 24, he says, I have sinned because I feared the people. That's it. That's the sin. That's the root that corrupts the whole thing so that everything Saul did, even as he obeyed God, was a rejection against God. And he, uh, Saul uses a word that has this enormous significance. And he says, I feared the people. Now, uh, in biblical Hebrew, the word fear is more than just to get goosebumps and, and to be frightened, you know, when you see a scary movie or something like that. But the word fear means to stand in awe of the power and the glory of something greater than you and bigger than you. And imagine that you're standing in the eye of a hurricane and the, and the, and the, and the winds are just whipping you, right? And the power of it and, the, and, and whatever you feel there, that's fear. It means reverence. It means awe. And so the fact that Saul evokes this word or maybe he lets slip this word reveals his true heart, his ultimate allegiance which is that all along, everything that he was doing, he was doing it for public opinion, to gain public approval. That's the thing that really enthralled him. That's the power that really shook him to the core. And for Saul, it was the good opinion of people. Imagine with me uh, a young man who's starting out at a company, and he's very ambitious, uh, very hardworking. And he goes to a party, and one day... uh, he sees uh, the CEO's daughter. And then he uh, saunters on up to her. And they head it off, and uh, there's a romance, and they get married. And then one year later, it's the uh, wedding anniversary. And uh, the, the daughter of the CEO, who is now this young man's wife, has been really looking forward to this night. You know, she's really been anticipating it. Why? Because uh, her husband will finally come home early and they're going to go to this nice restaurant, and they're going to just really make a whole evening of it all to themselves. And then uh, this young man calls late in the afternoon, and he says, bad news, bad news. Um, I've been given a major project by the CEO, CEO himself, and so I'm afraid I'm going to have to break our date, I'm going to have to stay late, and I have to really work on this project. And the wife says, this is so important to me. I mean, can't this be given to somebody else, I'm sure my father will understand. And the man says, no, you don't understand how critical this is for me. 
Because before I married you, your father didn't even know I existed. And ever since we got married, he's paid attention to me. And finally, he's given me my big break. He's given me this big project. And I have to come through. I have to impress him or else it was all for nothing. Or else what was the whole point of it all? And so let's do it another night. You know, pick the fanciest restaurant you can think of and we'll go then, just not tonight. What will the wife say? She will say, now I know. Now I know that all along you married me. You didn't marry me for me. You married me to climb the corporate ladder. Now I know that our whole marriage is a sham and you were just using me. You see, all along when Saul was seemingly obeying the Lord, when he was defeating the Amalekites, when he was destroying most of the flock, he was doing it to curry favor with the people. And he only obeyed insofar as it furthered that goal, which was the real goal. And that's why even when he repents, what distresses him the most is not that God has rejected him. He's worried about appearances, right? He's saying, what would it look like if the people see that the prophet Samuel is not with me? And he says, so he says to Samuel, okay, okay, I understand, but can you still come back with me and just stand with me? So that the people will think that there's nothing wrong. Jesus said that you cannot have two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other, but you cannot have two masters. And he was, at, in that moment, he was talking about God and money. And he was saying, you have to choose. Someone has to be your Lord. And if God is your Lord, then money will just be a tool that you will use to please God and serve him. But if money is your Lord, then God will just be a tool. Do you see? And now you understand that even if you obey 90% of the time, let's say 90% of the time you tell the truth, you're honest. Those few times that you tell a lie, why did you lie? I'll tell you why. You lied because something else other than God has so gripped your heart that you're willing to do anything to have it and to keep it. And when that thing, which is the real God of your life, comes in conflict with the God of the Bible, then you will obey that and you will disobey God. And whatever that thing is, is it your career? Is it financial security? Is it what people think of you? Is it your good looks? Is it um, romance? Is it having children? Whatever that thing is, that is your real God. That is the idol in your life. And so the question here is, what is most precious in your heart? I really want you guys to think about this. I really want you guys to consider, what is it that in your heart of hearts you have to have? You cannot lose. It is the center of your life. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a man who finds treasure buried in a field. And with great joy, he sells everything that he has and he goes and he buys that field. And do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that what you treasure will shape and direct your life. And therefore, obedience is really just a byproduct. Do you understand? 
What you treasure is the thing that really controls you and directs you and shapes your life. And so Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. And so the question is, is Jesus the treasure of your life? Is he the thing that you most desire? Is he the greatest jewel and and precious thing in your life? Or is it something else? And so I want to close with this. If we're honest with ourselves, we're going to look at the story and we're going to see in, in King Saul a picture of ourselves. We're going to look at the story and say, that's me. And if that's true, what did the prophet Samuel say to Saul? He said, because you have rejected God, God has rejected you. And therefore, do we not deserve banishment? Do we not deserve to be cast into the outer darkness? And so what is our only hope? Our hope lies in the story itself. And the hope lies in verse 28. Okay, if you look at verse 28, let me take a step back and explain to you what's going on, okay? This story is not just a story about the personal failure of King Saul. It's not just a case study of disobedience, although I've kind of been, been, been speaking about it in that way. Okay, what is this story ultimately about? What is the grand narrative arc of this Bible story? It is the story of the failure of the first king of Israel. And who is the king of Israel? He is the federal head of, of the nation, which means that the fate of the people lies in his hands. If he obeys, the people prosper. If he disobeys, the people perish. Now, what do we learn? The first king of Israel, the representative head of the people, fails. He disobeys God, and therefore, the people should perish. Punishment, wrath, exile should just come down, consume the people, end of story, that's it. But the story doesn't end, only by the grace of God. The story doesn't end, and through his prophet, God says, I will send another king. Right? He says, I will give you an, uh, another king who is your neighbor, who is among you, who is better than you, who is greater than you, the true and final and ultimate king. Who is that king? In a very uh, narrow and limited sense, this is King David, right? Which the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. And, uh, and so, you know, the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel is really just a setup to introduce King David in chapter 16, right? But if you read the story of King David, if you read all the way through 1st and 2nd Samuel, you will become very disillusioned and very disappointed because you realize even David is not the one, right? Even David, I mean, he's vastly superior to King Saul, but even David fails. All you have to do is read the story of Bathsheba and, and Uriah. And so it's not King David. Who is it? It's another king. It's the son of David, who is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the true and final king, and he is the only king who truly obeyed God. He is the only king who, from the bottom of his heart, truly loved God with all of his heart, with all of his being, all the way, all of the commandments, all the way to the bottom. He is the only one, and not for sure he did it when no one else was looking. He is the only righteous king. And so because our king, the righteous king obeys. All those who are in Christ live, right? All those in Christ uh, prosper. 
But the judgment was delayed, right? The judgment was uh, deferred. And so Jesus Christ, as our representative, stands in our place, and the wrath and punishment that we deserve, that the people deserve, comes down on Jesus Christ on the cross, and that's the gospel, right? The body stripes, we are, we are healed. But that's not the full story. And that's why I quickly went through it, all right? That's not the full story. That doesn't completely answer our problem, because what is our problem? Our problem is the continue, continuing power of sin, the hold of sin in our lives. Why is it that we continue to sin? Why is it that we disobey? Why is it that despite our best efforts, something else has so gripped our hearts that that 10% of the time when it comes into conflict, we obey the real God of our lives? What is the solution to that? You see, the ultimate problem is our heart. And the answer is to look to Jesus. Because when you see Jesus dying on the cross, sacrificing himself, giving himself utterly and completely for you to save you, to love you, then your only reasonable response is to love him back, is to give your life for him. And so I want to tell you that the answer and the solution to our sins is not to say to ourselves, listen, I need to get with the program, I need to stop sinning. The answer to our problem is not to focus on obedience. I know that sounds really weird, okay? The answer to our problems is not to focus on our obedience, it's to focus on what our treasure is, is to focus on, on our hearts. And why is it that we cannot love God? Why is it the fact that God is not glorious to us, that we don't see his majesty and his beauty and his power? It's because, and it's only until we look at Jesus on the cross. And when we see him giving himself up to us like that, then our hearts will be warmed. And then we'll be able to see that God is our treasure. And so that's the answer. And uh, we're going to unpack that more throughout the retreat, but that's the beginning. That's the start. And that's what you have to preach to your heart every day. And so I want us to spend a few moments now in prayer. I want us to, uh, to go to God. And I want to ask you to really confess your sins to him. And uh, what is it that is the real God of your life? What is it that has a hold on your heart, right, which is the ultimate bottom line in your life, the ultimate non-negotiable in your life? And confess it to God. And then I want you to, foc- to train your eyes and to focus on Christ, sacrificing, giving him up for you, to love you, to, sac- to, to save you. And so I want to ask us to, uh, to pray. Marshall will be playing a little bit, and then I will close us in prayer.